Well, and for those of you who are just joining us, I want to catch you up. We're going through the book of Genesis. The series is Building a Biblical Worldview. And if you haven't been here, let me just walk through, um, and you can follow me on the screen there, uh, what we've covered so far. So in Genesis 1 and 2, we're answering the questions, where did we come from? Who are we and why, did, why are we here? There's a lot of questions out there. Did we come from uh, primordial soup? Are we just the offspring of apes? And if so, who are we? And so we said, no, we came from a creator God and we are made in his image and we're here to proclaim his name throughout the world. And in chapter three, we answered a few more questions. Well, what went wrong? If God created us good and all things were good and we were to go and just fill the earth, multiply and subdue it, what went wrong? It was called sin. It was from the very beginning, man and woman did not trust in the word of God and they followed after Satan and his devices. And the results of that sin were the curse upon creation, the curse upon man. And right there in the curse, who will say this? It was told to us that of the serpent, you will crush him on the head or on the heel and he will crush your head. And right there is the first gospel that God knew from the very beginning. One seed of the woman would come and crush Satan's head, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And from there we saw in Genesis 4 civilizations, because a lot of people put stock in our society and that we are going to usher in this utopian age. And we found out that civilizations came from sinful mankind that multiplied not only offspring, but multiplied their sins. And do those civilizations progress morally? No. We saw that those civilizations, uh, they could be well in the arts, they could be well in the agriculture, and they could do well in technology, but all the while they are spurning God and they are arrogantly calling out against him. And then last week we saw in Genesis 5 a few more questions. Uh, Where did they, or next slide please. Uh, where do, what did we do? What do we do in an evil and dying world? We looked at death, that over and over and over the pattern there was death, death, death. But one man, Enoch, walked with God. That's what we're to do. We're to walk with God. And will God judge the world? That is what we're going to find out today. Will God judge this evil and sinful world? And what is our hope in the midst of that? Well, if you're uh, Bible is already open. We're on Genesis 6, 1 through 8. If not, you can turn there and we'll get started. I remember, um, I think it was the year 1999, 2000, I was in Moscow. I went over there. We were doing a Bible training center for pastors and we got the privilege of going over and helping one of the older men in the church go and teach um, the, the pastors of Moscow how to read their Bibles, understand their Bibles, preach their Bibles, and disciple other men and women. And when we got there, all I knew of Moscow growing up, it was this Cold War, there was Khrushchev. And so when I got there, I was on Red Square. And I saw on one end this, this church, and I saw on the other end these huge building and this tomb of linen. And I was amazed by the fantastic amazed by it. And I was there on a mission to be a missionary, to teach men about the word and to help them disciple. But when I got there, I got consumed by the fantastic. I'd never been to Moscow. 
And today uh, we're going to look at a passage of scripture that, that is fantastic. You look at it and you go, no way this could be this way. But we could lose the point of the passage. And so what I've done, if you've followed along with an outline on Genesis 6, 1 through 8, I've given you your main point. I just want us to all to see it right up front. And it's also uh, up on the pro presenter if you wanted to follow along there. Here's the main point. Mankind's only hope is the grace of a just God who grieves over the wickedness of the world. And if you're following along, you will, we will break that down. We'll see a wicked world, both in heaven and on earth. We'll see a grieving God, and we'll see our only hope. And so first we begin with a wicked world. That when man began to multiply, that takes us back to Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw with their eyes that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. And if you're you can follow along and flip back to Genesis 3, 6. You see that same language used in the first sin. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And so these sons of God see the daughters of man and they take them, any that they chose. And so the question is often asked, who are these sons of God? If you want to look up on the PowerPoint there, you'll see that the sons of God, if you trace it throughout the Old Testament, that in Job 1.6, in Job 2.1, in Job 38.7, and in Daniel 3.25, in every single one of those verses, the only time that phrase is used, sons of God in the Hebrew Testament, every single time, it talks about angels every time. So you could easily say when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, angels saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took them. Now there are other uses of that child language in the Old Testament, but it's not that phrase, sons of God. It could be the children of Israel or God, the children of the Lord God, but never Do you see in the Hebrew, sons of God used for anything other than angels? And in the New Testament, you see then there are three options here. People will say, well, that's not really angels. It's it's just Seth's line marrying Cain's line. If you take Genesis 4, there's Cain's line, the wicked people. Genesis 5 is Seth's line, the, the righteous people. And so really what's happening there, those two lines are just getting together. Others say, no, these are powerful tyrants. But if you look, I want to show you the greatest commentary that you can buy. Yeah, it's right here. And if you follow along, we should have some verses up there. First Peter should be the next verse. First Peter 3, 19 and 20. You get in Job 1, Job 2, Job 38, and Daniel 3, all talking about angels. And you see First Peter 3, 19 and 20. It reads this, and Jesus went and made proclamation and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison, these spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Are we in the days of Noah? I think we're in the days of Noah. You have 532 says, 
And after Noah was 500 years old, he fathered Shem, Han, and Japheth and eight, but Noah found favor. And so these sons of God are taking daughters of men in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought to safety. And so we have spirits in prison waiting who were when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. Now, if you look at second Peter two, four and five, you will see for if God did not spare angels when they committed sin and when they committed and sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day, until the day of judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, There you have that same context. Angels who sinned. Angels who sinned in the days of Noah, Jude 6 and 7 tells us exactly what they did. Jude 6 and 7 reads this. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. And he compares those angels who sinned in that day, just as in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality. And here's the key. They pursued unnatural desires to serve as an example of ongoing punishment. And so here are these angels who leave their proper abode And they probably go into human men and they procreate with women. And so when men begin to multiply on the face of the earth, the sons of God see the daughters of women and they take them. And you notice what the Lord says. And so whether some think it's tyrants or Seth's line, uh, these people are waiting a time of judgment. And if you look at 6 verse 3, this is what the Lord says. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh and his days are 120 years. And so you even get a glimpse there. I don't even want to go into the depths of all that's in this passage, but you see the Holy Spirit. He was there in one verse, chapter 1, verse 2. He's fully revealed as God in Acts 3, but he's there as a part of the Trinity keeping mankind alive. And God says, my spirit will not strive uh, with them forever. Their days should be 120 years. And so these angels who cohabitate with women come and God sees it and he says, no, I'm going to judge. And people say, well, what is this 120 years? Is that nobody's going to live past 120 years? Well, if you flip over to Genesis 11, you see in that following list that men were living 403 years. They were living 209 years. So it can't be the age that mankind will live to. It most probably is 120 years until he judges the world through the flood. And so you can see that up there. There are two options. Uh, We have the sons of God. We're thinking those are angels. We have 120 years. We believe it's going to be the years of humans from the time of God's announcement to his judgment. And then we get this other fantastic verse in 6.4, the Nephilim. uh, Were these the offspring of the son of God? Were these giant people who were on the earth? Well, let's just look at verse 4 carefully. It says the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward 
when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. So the Nephilim are obviously distinct from these, these sons of God and daughters of man. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. What days? The days when the sons of God were taking the daughters of men. And afterward, in fact, you can look at Numbers 13.33 and the, the word Nephilim is mentioned again. And so people want to say, well, were, were these Nephilim not killed? Did they hang on to the ark? No. The idea behind that word Nephilim means they are fallen ones. And that helps us best interpret these first four verses if we stick with that definition, that the creation of God had become corrupt and these fallen ones, these mighty and renowned people were wicked. Heavenly beings leaving their abode, wicked men and women not following after God. That is the world's situation. That there are demons today. We believe in them. The Bible talks about them here. The Bible talks about them in the New Testament. All throughout the Gospels, you see demons wanting to inhabit human bodies. It's fantastic, but we cannot lose focus. Because that is the world's situation, but we see God's evaluation in verse 5. If the sons of God saw, notice the Lord saw. God sees. There's not one thing that he does not see. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere, and he sees this. And that that takes us back to the end of chapter 1 or the beginning of chapter 2 where it said, the Lord saw all that he created, and it was good. And now he says, the Lord saw the wickedness of man, and it was great on the earth. And this right here is the most loaded phrase in the entire Bible on the corruption of the human heart. One pastor wrote in the 60s, a more emphatic statement on the wickedness of the human heart is hardly conceivable. And so I show you those things about the sons of God, the 120 years and the Nephilim, and people want to talk all day long and question the Bible and question, well, what about the sons of God? What about 120 years? But we never stop to question our own hearts. And look what this phrase says in a 6.5, every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Every intention, purpose, will, idea, every intention of the thought of his heart, your desire, your mind, and your passions all brought together. Every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. Or as Sheldon read, only evil all the time. The New Living Translation said, the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on earth and he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. The message gets it right God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning until night. And so what does God do? The Lord was grieved that he had made man on earth. We have a wicked world and now you're seeing a grieving God. God's grief is real. 
No matter how one envisions God, he is neither cruel nor brutal. He is a grieving God. He's grieving because it is a part of him that judgment's not the first thing he thinks of. In fact, if you were to just comb the text, Isaiah 20.20 says God's judgment is strange. Isaiah 28.20, it's peculiar. It's not something God thoroughly enjoys doing. Ezekiel says God does not delight in the death of anyone in Ezekiel 18.32. Yet, God is in the heaven and he does as he pleases. The Psalms tell us, I believe it's Psalm 5, that God is angry all day at sinners who don't repent. Romans 1 says God's wrath is being poured out on this world. God's emotions are complex. He holds perfect integrity even as he judges iniquity and it grieves him. I think there's a a slide that just kind of captures in a sentence from Dr. John Piper about God's uh, complexity. God's emotional life is infinitely complex beyond our ability to fully comprehend. In fact, if you're just reading through Deuteronomy and you come to chapter 28, it should cause us to pause. In Deuteronomy 28, 63, God's given the law to his people. He's telling him, bringing them into a land. And God says, literally, as the Lord took delight in doing good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you're supposed to stop right there and not just gloss over that and just go. We serve an infinitely complex God who does not like to judge in a sense that that's this first reaction. It is a strange thing. It's a peculiar work. He doesn't delight in the death of anyone. Yet, to serve his purposes and what brings him most glory, he will do it. And if you have children, you understand this. We have a little girl. You know her. She is sweet but she's in a stage of talking back. And the other day, Ashley and I said, we've instructed you and we've warned you and we are telling you right now, if, if you do this again, you will get a spanking. And so she, yes, sir, and goes about playing. And I look at my wife and I tell her, get ready. I, I'm not all-knowing. <laughs> Just understand. Here's what's going to happen. She's, she's going to talk back. A little bit later, don't remember the exchange, but it was, well, what about, what's my first reaction? Oh, great. Here we go. Got a judge. I was grieved. Grieved. Oh, I don't want to do this. You know, you just take that, and then, right? You, well, who did she commit the offense? Was it you or me? Or who's going to do this? You know, you, no, it's whoever she committed the offense to. She's got to see mommy and daddy are on the same page. 
And you can just see tears in her eyes. She goes to the place where we discipline her. But we were grieved. It's a little insight. Okay. So the Lord sees in verse 5. He grieves in verse 6. And in 7, he decrees. He says, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. And not just man, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I'm sorry I've made them. God doesn't judge willy-nilly. He's fully aware of the issues that he judges. That's why he said the Lord saw, he grieves, he's not reactionary, he takes it in. But he will judge. He will judge. His kindness, by the way, to all our unbelieving friends is to lead them to repentance. But when he decides to judge, you and I can count on it coming to pass. That's why I think the 120 years says my spirit will not strive with them, contend with them, abide in them. In 120 years, I will judge. And I will wipe out creation because I am God. And everybody wants a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious God. But if we think about the atrocities in 1937 China and the killing fields, they're leading women out and slicing their pregnant bellies. You've got the current day Congo where gang rape goes on all the time. Everybody wants this loving, this tender God until my daughter gets raped. And then I want holy justice. Everybody wants a loving God until something happens that's wrong and they want it made right. Everybody. Sinner, we're all sinners. Believer and non-believer alike. I'm sitting in a restaurant with my non-believing friend and talk about absolute truth. And he's trying to use the, the... Silly smokescreen hand movement to try to get me to, ooh, ah, you got me now. I'm, re- I'm giving up my faith. You've got me. And you ask the question, friend, if your boys were in this culture and they got raped, would that be wrong? Yes, absolutely. One who is an atheist and would deny that he needs to repent of any sin recognizes Justice must happen. But notice that comes after the grieving. God is patient, but he's not blind. Jesus says, the son of man is coming when he will repay each person according to what he has done. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, said, I'm coming back and there will be repayment. That's the kind of God we serve. He's a just God. And if you notice, we're not doing too good because this is the third time in the curse of Adam, the creation gets the fallout. In the curse of Cain, the creation gets the fallout. And here, I will blot man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heaven. They didn't do anything. 
but he's showing us over and over. Moses, by the power of the Holy Spirit, is showing us over and over. Mankind's sin leads to the corruption of the entire world. It's no wonder creation groans awaiting its day of redemption. Romans 8, 20 and 21 says, For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, (laughs) but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption to obtain freedom of the glory. And here he uses that language of the children of God. And so where does that hope-filled freedom come from that we hear about that the creation longs for? Where does it come from? I love this last verse. God doesn't just show us that he grieves and that he does judge, but he gives us hope. But there's your contrast. Contrasted to all of one through seven, but Noah. There's the person, Noah, who earlier it said, out of the ground which the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us Relief or rest. But Noah, and look what it says, found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God sees wickedness and he gives grace. He is going to judge sin, but Noah is shown grace. Notice the emphasis is not on Noah's righteousness. If you look at verse 22, later on in in chapter 6, Noah did this and he did all the Lord that commanded him, but that only comes after he finds grace. Did you catch that? The emphasis is on the grace that God extends Noah in the midst of this wicked world. Before he built the ark, before, as Hebrews tells us, that he proclaimed judgment was coming, God saved Noah. Noah didn't do anything. Noah found grace. That is, if you were to take that word favor and trace it through the Old Testament into the New, it is grace. God saved Noah and the order is crucial. Sure, he's going to go and do all that the Lord commanded. That's only after he's shown grace. Philippians 1 says, God began the good work. God begins the good work. The order is crucial. Otherwise, we start seeing that Noah is righteous, therefore God should show him grace. No. God shows him grace, therefore Noah is righteous. The huge difference it's like we learned a couple of weeks ago. It's living out of that grace. Thank you, Tolian. The, imper- the indicative, Noah found favor. The imperative, now he goes and he does all that the Lord commands him. How about today? Is anything different? Not much has changed. We live in a world that is increasingly and becoming more creative in its wickedness. Creative, literally taking the image of God that they were made in and becoming creative in their wickedness. And we flaunt it in the papers. Hey, 
Snowball had left less than 50 arrests. Well, I'll be. That is awesome. Less than 50. 49. But we can marketing-wise say less than 50. And we have been shown grace. Paul says, only by the grace of God go I. Paul was as wicked as any of them, putting to death Christians. And he got knocked off his horse. And thus we are to be pure and wait patiently, anticipating the one who will give us ultimate rest. And so God's going to judge. You'll see this next week. He's going to judge through the flood and have a new beginning through Noah. And we see that same just and gracious God give us a new beginning through Christ. And follow me up on the screen there. Mark fifteen thirty nine. We see the true Son of God who always does His Father's will. And when the centurion who stood facing Him saw that this, saw in this way He breathed out His laugh, He said, Truly, this man, the Son of God. Jesus on the cross, dying for the sins of that centurion, and he sees it. This is the Son of God. And that Son of God, before he died, he grieved over sin. Look at Luke 19.41. We see the true God-man, the one who is fully God and fully man, grieving over sin of his own people, just like his father. And when he drew near and he saw the city, he wept over it. The true Son of God weeps over the sins of His people. But there's hope. Second Thessalonians says this, and this is the prayer that I will end with. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God the Father, there they are, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, favor, May that Jesus Christ and that God comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. That's who we trust in. There is a wicked world we live in. There's a grieving God who who will judge sin. And there's a hope-filled God who will save us from that sin. So the past two weeks, how do we live in a wicked and dying and evil world? Walk with God hope in Christ, anticipate his return because the world is dying. We're going to die. And the world is evil. But we, like Noah, must rest, literally, in God's grace. Father, we don't understand fully how you hold your justice and your mercy together. We are sinful people and apart from your grace in our own life, every intention of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually. Father, help us not just to look out there at the wicked world. Help us to look inside at our wicked hearts Help us to see that it is by grace alone that you have saved us and let us live out of that hope. 
Just like your son said to us, apart from him, we are nothing. So help us. Help us to fall deeper in love with you, a complex God who does right all the time. Help us to run from evil and help us to live in hope by your grace, for your glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.